Open to Matthew chapter 16, as I said. Um, You live in the political heart of Washington, D.C., and um, recent political campaign, and a lot of campaign promises are made when people run for office. Uh, If I elected, I will do this. Uh, My plan for the economy is the following. And sometimes uh, politicians are able to deliver on the promises that they make during campaigns. Uh, Sometimes they're not. Um, Sometimes we can cynically think, I don't think they ever really intended uh, to keep that particular uh, promise. But today we're we're just going to look at one verse. We're going to look at a promise. And it is a promise that we can be 100% assured that it is going to be kept because it is a promise made by the king of the universe. It's a promise made by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. Now, the occasion for this promise is actually a familiar scene to many people that have been Christians for a while. Uh, Jesus and the 12 disciples were at a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was kind of a Roman colony or, or outpost there in Palestine. And Jesus asked his disciples the following question. Who are people saying that I am? What's, what's the buzz? What's the word on the street uh, out there about me? And, and his, his disciples reported, and some say this, some say that. And um, then the next question, well, how about you guys? Who, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter, in one of his best moments, because he didn't have a lot of good moments in the Gospels, but in one of his best moments, he, he gets the answer right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And things change in the Gospels from this point uh, forward. And it's interesting that in the passage we're going to look at today, just the one verse, immediately Jesus turns the conversation to the implications of that truth, to the implications of the reality of who he is by making this following unbreakable, 100% guaranteed promise Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One verse, one short sentence, but one verse and one short sentence in what's Jesus helps us to understand the entire history of the church. And not only the entire history of the church, but the history of this local church in a way that helps us, helps you to face your future, whatever the future may bring, with great faith and great confidence. So let's pray. And then we're just going to look at two real simple points, the gates of hell and Jesus building his church. Well, Father, I I thank you. What a privilege to be here. What a privilege to preach to these well-taught, godly people. And uh, Father, I I know we we need you. We need you every Sunday, uh, but we need you. Holy Spirit, please come. Uh, Please help me to, to expound your word in a way that's true and that's accurate and that is glorifying to you. And, and please serve and and bless your people as you give them ears to hear and minds to comprehend, but more importantly, hearts to grasp and come to faith for and grace in. 
uh, this wonderful truth that you're building your church and nothing shall prevail. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we're, we're going to kind of flip the passage. We're going to look at what Jesus said second first and then uh, first second. And uh, secondly, he talks about this threat to his building the church, and that is uh, the gates of hell. Uh, now, commentators look at the, the idea of gates a little bit differently, but, but basically gates in, Bible, in the Bible has the implication of authority. Uh, the gates of a city were, the, were, were kind of where the city council or the politicians or the rulers of the city would meet. So the gates were a place of authority. So when Jesus talks about the gates of hell, he's talking about the authority or the, the dominion or the kingdom of hell. The, the opposition of Satan and all of his minions uh, against God's people. Uh, opposition that started way back in the Garden of Eden and continues to this day and is going to continue to the very last day. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul wrote the following, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, before we look at what Jesus does say, we need to look at what he doesn't say here. It's important to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say the gates of hell will not attack the church. doesn't say that. He doesn't say the gates of hell won't seek to harm the church. doesn't say that. He doesn't say that the gates of hell won't win some battles against the church and this cosmic battle that there won't be some battles won. The devil hates the church. He hates the church because he hates God. He hates the church because he hates Jesus. He hates the church because he hates the gospel. He hates the church because he hates the people of God. And he hates the church, especially when the church is declaring that gospel and demonstrating that gospel. Uh, they become the prime target for his hatred. And historically, and even now, his attack upon the church has always been three-pronged. There's been, been, been three fronts on the attack. Uh, the first is persecution by the world, where Satan has historically just tried to kill Christians, to, to wipe the church out, as, as Devon referenced uh, in, in North Korea going on uh, even now, to wipe the church out, or at least to make the church so fearful of the persecution that, that they might shrink back from the mission that they have been called to. Uh, the second attack is much more subtle, and that is when the church is accepted by the world uh, or accommodated to uh, the world, where, where the church subtly becomes indistinct from the world. Uh, the church, churches are supposed to be distinct from the world. Not obnoxiously distinct, not self-righteously uh, distinct, but attractively distinct and humbly distinct from uh, the world. And so sometimes Satan does that by just promoting a love for the world. 
uh, by uh, the church. Uh, we, we see the prosperity gospel, which is really uh, no, no, no gospel at all, but very popular in America uh, that, that just talks about God wants everybody to prosper and, and be the lead. And, um, and then, particularly in our time, uh, attempts to be relevant to the culture in a way that many times actually sows the seeds of the church's own irrelevance by trying to be relevant or accommodating in that way. So you have persecution, you have uh, accommodation or acceptance, and then last, just by corruption from within the church. So false teaching, false prophets, a heresy, or by, by sowing discord uh, within the church, uh, particularly by bringing pastors into disrepute uh, in front of uh, the world. Um, in a strange way, any church that hasn't experienced these attacks ought to be worried. Uh, they, they ought to be concerned. An unattacked church is probably an ineffective church. Uh, the ch- churches, the liberal churches aren't getting attacked. Churches, churches that are promoting homosexuality, they're not getting attacked. Uh, churches that are, that are promoting same-sex marriage, they're, they're not getting attacked. Churches that aren't preaching the gospel aren't getting uh, attacked. Because they're ineffective, they're ineffectual. There's, there's no sense wasting time on this. And so, brothers and sisters, to join a church is to join this ongoing cosmic battle that has been going on since the Garden of Eden and will go on the end of time between God and his people and Satan and his minions and the world. And as a result, as a part of a local church, we can't expect unbroken happiness. There are many times, oh, there's many joyful things and happy things and great things that go on in the church. But we can't expect that our happiness will be unbroken. We, we, we can't expect lack of struggles and challenges uh, being a part of a local church or a member of a local church. Uh, we can't expect steady, uninterrupted growth. You know, we're just going to plant this church and then in, in two years we'll be at 1,000 and then five years, 5,000. And then, you know, we just, we can't expect those kinds. Sometimes churches shrink. Um, there's, we, we can't expect stunning. We can't expect an easy, comfortable time uh, by being a member of a local church. Sometimes the reality is being a member of a local church can be hard. But we also have this assurance the gates of hell will not ultimately prevail. So we have a threat, and then we have this assurance. The gates of hell will not prevail. Now, let's walk ourselves back to the original context for this being said uh, for a moment. This is a, this is a startling statement, given the time and place and by whom and where uh, it, was, it, it was made. So here you have this small band of nobodies sitting in this Roman backwater, and, and Jesus makes this bold proclamation to nobodies in a backwater. I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell, it just will not prevail against it. I mean, 
you, if the odds makers got a hold of this, like the odds would be worse than the Cavaliers winning the NBA championship, although I am still holding out. It is, it's amazing, it's shocking that the church survived its infancy, isn't it? If you know anything about church history, just read the book of Acts, read, uh, read your Bible. The hostility and the persecution that came against these small band of, uh, of Christians at the very beginning, from the Jews, from the mighty Roman Empire, uh, at times to be a Christian was, was illegal and, and punishable by death. And yet, the church remains and the mighty Roman Empire is long gone. Uh, I came across, Roman emperors were fond of making plaques honoring themselves. And so whenever they go, they'd like to put up plaques to just honor themselves. And the emperor Diocletian, uh, who was the emperor in the second century who conducted the most systematic persecution uh, against the, tr the Christian church. So uh, Diocletian uh, put this plaque up in Greece and he said this, that, by the way, they're also very fond of having lots of names. They love plaques and they love giving themselves lots of names. Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesarus, Augusti, for having adopted Galerius in the East, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ. Plaque, you can go see it today. Shocking. Many countries of the world, it seems like Christianity could be or could have been wiped out in the past like stepping on ants. Uh, when um, China turned communist, they drove out all the missionaries, drove out all of the theologians, killed all of the pastors, thought they had successfully killed the church. And we have now what's known as the China miracle, where without pastors, without churches, without Bibles, somehow millions of people in China are saved and join these home churches. Uh, same thing's probably happening in North Korea and we just don't get news uh, about it. Uh, Islamic nations today. Uh, I just read a statistic recently that there have been more Muslims saved in the past 100 years than in the previous 1400 years since the beginning um, of, of, of Islam. Um, from almost day one, the church has had to deal with false prophets and false teachers. Um, some of the earliest struggles in the church uh, were struggles with heresies, trying to define what it is that, that, that we believe. And you've got to remember, people didn't have Bibles, and so uh, struggles with heresies. Over time, the church became so corrupted that you really couldn't even call it the church anymore. And yet, celebrating the five, 500 years of the Reformation this year where God raises up men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and restores his church from the false teaching and the heresy. And who knows what the future is going to hold. But we can certainly be assured of this. No matter what the future holds, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, this promise is for the church universal. It, it's, it's for the church as God sees it from, uh, from heaven. But I think it's important for us to ask this question. How will the devil not prevail against any one local church or against this local church, most importantly, 
to you. Uh, I think God has kindly spared us from persecution in, in America. But again, as, as, as Devin referenced this morning, the culture is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity in the United States. The, the, the highly valued, almost the most valued virtue is tolerance and toleration. Uh, truth, uh, very low on the scale of things that are uh, valued. And so I think we're coming a time, I think people can see that we're coming towards a time uh, where accusations and laws of bigotry and hatred towards Christians simply because they're preaching the Bible, they, they could come our way. Uh, compromise with the world is always an ever-present danger, uh, particularly in the church in America. Uh, one of my concerns that I have that I uh, particularly try to share with our young people, but young, older people aren't immune from this, is, is what I call American dream Christianity. That in America, Christianity can very easily become person saved, you know, they read their Bible, they go to church, but you get a good education, you have a nice home, you have a couple cars, nothing wrong with any of that, I have all of that. Some people would question the good education, but for the rest of it. <laughs> but, but, but I think it's, it's very easy to, to, to think we're being biblical Christians just by being good American Christians and, and losing the radical edge that God has always called us to uh, as Christians. I, I think there is danger if we're not careful of becoming so comfortable, and I have nothing against comfort, but just becoming so comfortable that we lose that radical edge that, that individual Christians in the church is, is called to be. Um, he's kindly spared sovereign grace from heresy, but uh, I think we always need to be doctrinally alert I think we always need to be biblically committed. I think we always need to be gospel-centered. I think the, the, the biggest danger for Sovereign Grace churches um, isn't um, heresy, but I, but I think it's a slow drift, if you're not careful, away from biblically robust doctrine and practice. I think we always need to be careful. It's, it's one of the ways that the devil is always going to be uh, tempting us. I think the greatest danger that American churches face, however, is the devil's schemes of sowing discord and discontentment. Um, the promotion of criticism and judgmentalism and complaining and slander and gossip, which are almost sins that are off the radar screen for many people in the days in which we live, and then along with that, the corresponding, well, the grass is greener somewhere else. And the fact that there are so many churches that you could go to uh, where the grass might look greener uh, if something goes wrong. And so I, I, I think we face that. And the reason for that is the inescapable reality is the church is made up of sinners. 
Um, we, we don't have anything else to draw from. Uh, justified sinners, forgiven sinners, but sinners nonetheless. And because the church is made up with sinners, um, it, it just makes it ripe for Satan's malevolence, doesn't it? For him to be able to get in there and sow discord and sow uh, discontentment. So how do we resist this attack? How do we protect ourselves against this attack? Well, I, I think what Paul says in Colossians, I think, man, if churches just followed this, this, um, we, we, would, we would be safe. Uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, And so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. How different our churches would be if we just simply followed that. And I just want to thank you all this morning. I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being humble and forgiving and forbearing and loving people with each other. Uh, I particularly want to thank you for being that with your pastors. Uh, pastors are uniquely vulnerable to discontentment and discord. Uh, they're in the public eye. They make decisions that affect the church. Uh, sometimes those decisions are unpopular. Sometimes the decisions are even wrong. And as a result, they, be- they become unique targets uh, for discontentment and discord. Thank you for being the kind of people that humbly forgive and forbear and are kind and loving to one another. So, Satan's attacking, but he shall not prevail. And the reason he's not prevail is the second point we come to is because Jesus is building his church. I will build my church, Jesus says. Uh, I was uh, saved later in life and... uh, I didn't even own a Bible. I actually got saved reading what I call a fake Bible. It was a paraphrase. And um, so I thought, well, I better get a Bible. So I remember going to a Christian bookstore. How many remember the Lamplighter bookstore? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on University Boulevard. I went to the Lamplighter. Um, I remember one of the things I'll never forget. Like they had just shelf after shelf of Bibles. It's like, what, what is this? You know, I just thought there's, there's a Bible. Um, So I remember I picked out a Bible, and then I thought, I'll buy a couple Christian books. And uh, the first book, I don't know why I picked this out, Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness, first book I ever read. (laughs) (laughs) Still still pursuing, Larry. (laughs) Um, You know better than anyone. And then I bought a book by a man named Arthur Wallace, and in it I read the following quote, brand new Christian, 28 years old. If any man would be a success in life, find out what God is doing and throw yourself into it wholeheartedly. If any man would be a success in life, find out what God is doing and throw yourself into it wholeheartedly. I I can't tell you in God's providence the effect that that quote had on me. Again, 28 years old, up to that point, my highest goal in life would just been to have fun, just to, to just have a good time. Uh, I thought that was life was all about. I was one of those people that looks back. I was lost 
And I wasn't even aware of it. What a dangerous position to be in, to be lost and happy and unaware of your day-to-day peril. Uh, I gave God many opportunities to just kill me with what they call plausible deniability. Oh, it was his fault. And I read that quote, and again, what I know is the Holy Spirit, just something went through me. Uh, I, I, I wish Wallace would have changed success to meaning. If everyone wants a meaningful life, a life that's going to mean something eternally, find out what God is doing and throw yourself whole into it wholeheartedly. And, and I remember from that day on, I, I said, that's what I want to do. And here's what I found out very early on. What God's doing is the church. What he's doing is building the church. And that's why, by God's grace, from that point forward, what I've thrown myself into wholeheartedly is uh, the church. Now, I'm not going to get into this rock and Peter. Um, the, The church is built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, which Peter is representative of. Uh, The important thing here is that Jesus is the builder of the church, not what the rock is. And I want to notice, I just want to break down each word here. First of all, I will... I will. Jesus isn't floating out an idea to his disciples. He's not, hey guys, I have an idea. What about me building the church? What would you guys think? You know, give, give me your input. Let's, let's, let, let, let's see what we, what we like about this idea. He's, he's not floating something out there. He, he, it, it's not a plan with a contingency. How about this for plan A and then this is plan B? There are no maybes here. Jesus is declaring unequivocally that he is going to build his church. Um, It's one thing for me or any of you to say, I'm going to do something. I have every intent to do something. But here's the reality. Circumstances can happen and we can't always carry out what it is that we want to do. Uh, I can be thwarted, but Jesus as the king of the universe cannot be thwarted in his purpose. He will build his church. He will do it. Secondly, uh, I. I will do it, Jesus says. The church is his personal passion that, as a result, assures us of his personal involvement. Uh, The president of the United States has a big job. And every president since the beginning has had to pick what are the things that I'm going to delegate and what are the things that I'm going to personally put my hand to. And he's going to only put his hand to the things that are most important that he cannot delegate. Jesus personally puts his, there's no delegation. He personally puts his hand to building his church. And then I will build my church, the church, this church, is, is the object of Jesus Christ's divine love and care. It is, it is it's my church, uh, Jesus says. I, I love it in the book of Acts when Paul is on the Damascus road and Jesus asks him this question, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? Right. Jesus is so identified with his church, with his people, that to harm the church, that to attack the church is to attack me. Mark Dever says, 
the church should be regarded as important to Christians because it's important to Christ. Christ founded the church, purchased it with his blood, and intimately identifies himself with it. The church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of his spirit, and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. Finally, the church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and a great host of redeemed humanity to himself. One more question, though. How does he do that? How is it that Jesus is now building the church? What's he, what's he doing? What's, what, what, what's the plan? Well, it's interesting. The first thing he does is actually the very next thing that he gets to in uh, Matthew 16. Look down at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So the first thing he did, the first thing that that we always need to begin with is he died and, and he rose for the church. He purchased the church by his blood. He, he, he saved an untold number of sinners by dying in their place, by substituting for you and, and for me. And God validated and vindicated that by rising, raising him from the dead so that we could be united with him to get all the benefits of his death and united with him to have all the benefits of his resurrection. So there is nothing more important than what Jesus said immediately. The way he builds his church is through the gospel, through dying and through rising again from the dead for his people. But he didn't just die and rise. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords, ruling over all. And he's continuing to build his church. Let me just give you four ways to encourage you. First of all, uh, well, First, he works directly. Four ways that he works directly. First of all, he's continuing to save sinners. Why are you and I here today? Well, it's because Jesus is continuing to save sinners. His name is Jesus, which means Savior. He was given the name because he will save his people from their sins. And his saving them from their sins uh, primarily was through his own works, his death and resurrection. Uh, But then we still got to get saved in history. And he's still saving people. He's sending the Spirit to regenerate. He's sending people to preach the gospel. He's enabling you to hear the gospel. And you got saved. So Jesus is building his church by continuing to add people over the centuries by saving. He's building his church, secondly, by sending the Spirit to empower the church. In uh, John chapter 16, verse 7, uh, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm interrupting right now. I'm like, time out, hold on. <laughs> Jesus is with them in the flesh and Help, help me to understand how it's an advantage to us that you go away, that it's better that you go away. I'm, I'm not getting this, Jesus. I'm calling you on this one. We're calling time. Most of the time you've been accurate, but this one I have questions about. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come, the helper being the Holy Spirit, but I will send him to you. When Jesus sends his spirit, you, you can't help but notice the dramatic difference 120 people hiding in an upper room and 3,000 people the very first day uh, are saved because of the empowering presence of the Spirit in the church. 
And Jesus is still sending his spirit to empower ministry, sending his spirit to empower ministry within the church, sending his spirit to empower ministry outside the church, sending the spirit. Uh, Jesus is building his church by giving servant leaders to the church. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, and then 11 through 13, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Uh, Pastors are not allowed to think of themselves as gifts, but pastors are gifts to the church. It's the way Jesus builds his church. He gives gifts. What are those gifts? He gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The key word there is really equipped. Equipping isn't simply teaching people certain skills. I think that's the way we we sometimes think of equipping, though it is that. But equipping means teaching, ministering to the whole person so that those people can then minister to others. That's what the equipping ministry of pastors and teachers is all about. So Jesus is giving servant leaders and then he's maturing the saints. Uh, We have this wonderful passage on marriage But please remember that the passage on marriage is about Jesus and the church. And this is what he says. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. How is it that we get from being messed up sinners to mature saints? How does that happen? Well, it's because... Jesus is, is building his church and, right. and, and, and his hidden influence on our soul. And you know what, brothers and sisters, sometimes it even happens through trials. Jesus says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind, because the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance will finish its work, so you'll be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Even our trials are, are a sign to us that Jesus is busy building his church. He's building it directly and then he works through us. What a shock. He works through us. Notice that Mark Dever said the the church is God's instrument. We're called his body. That means when when Jesus wants to speak, we're his mouthpiece. When Jesus wants to touch, it's our hands. When Jesus wants to go, it's our feet. We're we're his body. Um, So he saves sinners as we go to preach the gospel. Thanks for being faithful witnesses. Thanks for the reminder this morning. Just to be faithful, faithful witnesses. Thanks for being the kind of church that just daily demonstrates the gospel by your love and, 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 your, and your care uh, for one another. Uh, thanks for being involved in one another's lives and helping one another to, to grow in all the ways uh, that you do. Thanks for all the serving you've done. Thanks for all the giving that you've done. Thanks for all the caring that you've done for one another. Thanks for bearing one another's burdens. Thanks for honoring one another. Thanks for encouraging one another. Thanks for edifying one another. Thanks for mourning when some mourn. And thanks for rejoicing when some rejoice. Thanks for the ways that incalculably, materially and spiritually, Uh, you just come alongside to Christ to build his church. Thanks for all of you that have participated in this and other churches so faithfully. One final thing. Are we doing a song? You guys can come up or whatever you do. 
This is brief. Jesus is going to see us through to the end. The gates of hell will not prevail because Jesus is going to persist in building his church to the very end. Uh, Philippians 1.6 is a passage in scripture that we often like to apply to ourselves. And it's legitimate to, to do that. But in, in, in context, it's written to a local church. And it gives us permission, every church, this church, Grace Church, to be able to, to hold on to this promise for ourselves as well. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul can be sure of this because he heard this promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The, the greatest thanks that all of us have today is thank you to Jesus for his faithfulness to keep this promise to build his church throughout all of eternity. And thank you for being a part of that. Amen.